0: Welcome, my buddy, to Crystal Kylan, friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Eric Blanc about the everything that's going on with teachers in the country, the teacher shortage, what's happening in Florida with Ron DeSantis and his war on teachers, I think it's fair to say.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, Eric is someone I've been following a long time. I actually first started following him during the uh, Red for Ed teacher strike, which of course I was very interested in as well and was on the ground for part of that in West Virginia and Kentucky. And he actually wrote a book called Red State Revolt, What the Teacher Strike Wave Means for Workers in Politics. He's a uh, professor of labor studies at Rutgers University as well. So a lot to talk to him about this week.
0: Yes, so definitely looking forward to that. But before we do it, dare I say based Dark Brandon. Little bit. Dare I say it? Little bit. Dare I say that. <laughs> Did I just say that? I think I may have said that. All right. So look, here's my here's my nuclear, incredibly spicy hot take for you. Okay. That I want I want your opinion on. Now I'm not saying I even fully believe this, but I'm toying with the idea now.
1: <laughs> okay. okay. Okay.
0: Biden may have surpassed Obama okay. as the best president. Of my lifetime,
1: which is admittedly a low bar.
0: Yeah. So, uh, okay. so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish first why they both suck.
1: You're not going George H.W. Bush.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to establish first why they both are not good. And we're arguing over who's the tallest kid in kindergarten. Right. But then I will proceed to make the case that perhaps Biden has surpassed Obama. Honestly, worst case scenario, I'd give it a tie. Mm. Worst case scenario, I'd give it a tie. Now, okay. what
1: about? Have you seen George W. Bush's paintings? Uh, does just something he, to add into the equation.
0: Just, just out of curiosity, does he paint with the blood of dead Iraqi babies? Is that what he paints with? Because that's um, what he can paint
1: with. He could. He okay, could. Right. Not sure. Undetermined.
0: So, yes. Anyway, all right. So, uh, okay, you can take his
1: master class and find out. L- <laughs>
0: Don't give me an aneurysm Sorry. before we even begin this specific, <laughs> all right? So first, let's talk about Obama. The okay. bad stuff under Obama. I'm just going to breeze through the bad stuff just to establish that we're not talking about good guys here, okay? Flint water crisis. They drank the water, pretending it was already fixed, Awful. and it wasn't fixed. Awful. Uh, under his administration, the infrastructure was graded at D, and he didn't do Dickie McGee's acts about that. Okay. Uh, he broke the deportation record. He was called the deporter-in-chief in many communities in this country as a result of that. Mm-hmm. He pushed for TPP. Which is, of course, you know, yeah. we all know, a terrible trade deal that would have uh, outsourced, written by corporate America. Stuff. Written by yeah. corporate America, it was like under lock and key. Um, he also did a number of other free trade deals. That actually, got through. There was a South Korea one, a Colombia one, yep. a, a Panama one. He expanded NSA spying, Guantanamo Bay. He tried to close it, but it was left open, and he gave up on that after a while. Um, Wall Street bailout didn't prosecute Wall Street criminals. Uh, didn't prosecute any uh, tortures or or war criminals. We have. He had a super majority, didn't get a uh, single payer, didn't even get public option, uh, no free college, no minimum wage increase, didn't legalize weed or improve the schedule of weed, uh, gave Israel 38 billion, gave Saudi Arabia billions, illegal drone strikes, made most of the Bush tax cuts permanent. Although what I'd say about that one is they were on the lower end. So I'm not as necessarily against that because it was more tax cuts for like. Middle class people, mm. so he made those permanent. So I'm not as offended by that as as some are. You know what I'm saying? Mm. It wasn't the top I level that he made what permanent. The levels were anyway. Um, and then of course we were still in Iraq. We were still in Afghanistan. Um, and he bombed Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Syria, Libya. Didn't roll back the U.S. Empire. Didn't even try to get money out of politics. Drug and he strikes. didn't get gun reform through despite polls that were freakishly high and a bunch of mass shootings. And he wasn't able to get anything through on that front. Mm. Okay, so. That's the bad under Obama.
1: Now, abandoned Employee Free Choice Act too. I have to put that one in there. Right, and that was that would have been
0: phenomenal uh, legislation for unions, right? Yes, Employee exactly, Free right. Choice that's,
1: Act. It yeah, it's what c- commonly known as card check. But yeah, yeah that was correct. a big campaign promise to the unions, and then immediately when they get in, they're like, "Yeah, this is too hard. Sorry, I can't do it."
0: Okay, so now, let me tell you some good things that he did. Okay. So he did an immigration executive order on DACA, which helped out the Dreamers. He rejected the Keystone XL pipeline, rejected the Dakota Access pipeline, banned offshore oil drilling in the Arctic. That was on his way out, to be fair. When he was in office, he allowed it. And then when he was leaving office, he banned it. Mm -hmm. Um, Killed bin Laden. You could argue about the legality of that and whatnot. People on the left might have something to say about how good that was because it wasn't a legal action, right? But killed bin Laden. I think a normie would give him credit for that. Uh, Cut the deficit in half. Um, doubled. And again, that's MMT. People would say that's not a good thing, but just a normie would look at that and say, okay, good. Uh, doubled the stock market, uh, Dodd-Frank Wall Street Street reform, which was, I would argue mixed at best. Yeah. Um, cut small business taxes. He did that a number of times, raised taxes on people making $400,000 a year, um, or more. Um, ended. Don't ask. Don't tell. Brought back stem cell research. Gay marriage happened, but that was more because of the Supreme court. Yeah. Uh, he got Obamacare, which again, I'd say is mixed. It was like the least of the reforms you could possibly do with a supermajority, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, freed nonviolent drug offenders on his way out, a bunch of them. Probably the best thing, Iran deal.
1: Yeah. Cuba we'll put deal. that up there, yep.
0: Change the overtime rules to be more pro-worker.
1: Paris Climate, you got that in there? That's
0: in here. So yeah. save General Motors. Okay. That's a huge one. Definitely. Right? Um, uh, Paris Climate Agreement is in there as well. And then just a couple more on Obama. Um, improved EPA regulations. Uh, he had a stimulus package. You don't remember the specifics of that. Uh, it's
1: wildly inadequate. You could put that in the uh, bad category, potentially, yeah, too. Yeah,
0: or mixed it best. It's a
1: mixed bag, yeah.
0: Um, and then he allowed UN condemnation of Israel and pushed a two-year free college bill, which didn't get implemented, but at least he, you know, attempted. Yes. So anyway, that's the good that Obama did. Now, okay. you want me to start with the bad? I guess I'll start with the bad of Biden, get that out of the way. Okay. Because that's, you know, that's, there's a lot there, but we can breeze through this here. I mean, number one, he's starving Afghanistan to death right now. Just not giving them their own money back, which is horrific. Um, He's continuing to help Saudi Arabia with their genocide in Yemen. And he even, he lied about this one. This one was stunningly grotesque, because he said, we're gonna stop helping Saudi Arabia do their bombing campaigns. Then they kept giving them weapons, and the media was like, what are you doing? He comes back and says, no, 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 we're only giving them defensive weapons. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's so gross, because he's continuing the exact same policy, but Mm -hmm. pretending he's more official with it, right? He's filling in the gaps in Trump's border wall. He kept in place a lot of Trump's harshest border policies. Mm-hmm. Just recently, they, some of them changed, but I think that's more because the courts mandated that they changed, not because Biden had a, a change of heart, correct?
1: Uh, I have to check the details. Because
0: there's that. remain in Mexico is one of them. Right. And there's uh, one other title 42, which is the pandemic eric, uh, era policy. I, I think
1: it's actually, if memory serves correctly, it's actually the opposite. They wanted to undo the Trump policy. The court basically said they couldn't. And now there's like some change that allowed them to undo it. Okay, anyway. so that would be yeah.
0: the reverse of what I'm saying here. Okay, anyway, we'll we'll leave that one out there and people can look it up Fact for Fact check us and yeah. Yeah,
1: tell us um, what the facts are there.
0: He picked an anti-social security extremist to oversee the program as reported by David Sirota. That's bad. <laughs> um, I would argue the fact that we're now sending Ukraine more money and weapons for like the 16th time. It's gone overboard now. Yeah. Clearly nobody's really trying to even sit down and find some sort of negotiated settlement. And yeah. I would argue that's both on the American side and on the Russian side. I don't think either one of them are interested oh, in, in cheese. Sure. Yeah. Um He hiked Medicare prices, sent U.S. troops to Somalia, bombed Syria. You know, in the wake of the Afghanistan withdrawal, he a- approved a-, a drone strike that massacred um, a family. Yeah. We learned about that on the way out of Afghanistan. Yeah. So that's definitely, those are the negatives. Um, now let's get to the positives on on Biden. And you tell me what you think is stronger, the, the case for Obama or the case for Biden. So right off the bat, he just canceled the $10,000 in student loan debt, 20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. Uh, but an even maybe more important provision is the capping it at 5% of your monthly uh, income. Yeah. So, because people are paying like 10% now.
1: Which in fairness, that 10% was put in place by Obama.
0: Oh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so, so that
1: he does get some credit there. That's a
0: clear improvement on Obama.
1: It's a clear improvement, but Obama was the one who started something. that program okay. out of nothing. But he did. Biden's making it better. A lot better. Yeah. That's a lot better. Half. Right. Yeah. That's
0: a lot better. Okay. Uh, the $1,400 stimulus checks. Um, I'm inclined to give him mixed reviews on that because they were campaigning on 2000
1: Yeah, but it's still... Well, that's what was, I'm saying. Yeah, there were no like, Obama checks. I'm giving checks, you so. credit,
0: but you know, <laughs> this isn't in like, the... Super based category because he okay. said two thousand, right? Okay. But still yeah. credit, right? Yes. Um, this one, this is actually my favorite one, and nobody knows about it. So, remember how the Supreme Court did a horrific decision recently, saying the Environmental Protection Agency is no longer allowed to protect the environment. Yeah, you're no longer allowed to regulate greenhouse Carbon. gases. Right, that's what they said. So, in the uh, inf- Inflation Reduction Act, which just passed. Democrats slipped in a provision, which nobody noticed, which allows the EPA to re-regulate the greenhouse gas emissions. Yes. Because they what they did is they defined CO2 as a pollutant, which then gives the EPA the ability to regulate it. Right. I saw that and I was over the fucking moon. I was like, this is the most yeah. base thing Democrats have ever done.
1: Yeah. And it is amazing because Republicans just like didn't even notice. They didn't notice. They didn't notice. <laughs> and it's, it, the Supreme Court was literally like in their decision, like, well, you, go, you just got to legislate. I mean, there's no excuse for not just directly legislating. Democrats are like, bet. Let's do it. And I thought
0: <laughs> wrongly. There's literally no way that they're going to legislate to get this through. And right. We're fucked, that's and what the
1: Supreme Court thought, too. They that's just the assumed Court like, eh, it's gridlock. They'll and never now, be able to get that through. And now then, they passed it. Yeah. And
0: they slipped it in. That was I just shit. the
1: hell out of me that they were
0: <laughs> clever gee enough. Yeah, shit. And the most enough base shit any Democrat has ever done ever. That's on some <laughs> FDR level type <laughs> shit. I'm not even joking. Yeah, that's on some like, OK, you want to fuck with me? I got you, bitch. Yeah, that's what's up. OK, Um So there was also an executive order that Biden signed for 200,000 construction workers to increase their pay, which mandates what's called project labor agreements for deals that are over $35 million. So it's a very pro-union, pro-construction worker kind of thing here that's gonna increase pay. That's a good thing. Um, One of my favorite things Biden did, he signed an executive order, $15 minimum wage for federal workers and contractors, which applies to hundreds of thousands of people, Mm -hmm. which is phenomenal now. He wasn't able to get the full $15 minimum wage through. But when I saw that he signed that executive order my interpretation of how Biden was acting changed a little bit. Cause originally I thought he's not even in favor of $15 minimum wage. He's just posturing. Right. But now I believe he is in favor of it because he signed an executive order to put it in place for federal contractors and workers. But he genuinely feel like he ran into a brick wall against mansion and cinema. And you know, I would argue he, there's ways around that and, but he couldn't find him is the point, but I'll yeah. still give him credit for the executive order. Cause hundreds of thousands of people got a big raise as a result of that. Okay. So I'll give him that. Okay. Um, The gun reform that they just did, it's as weak as weak can be. But honestly, I was resigned to never getting anything ever on gun reform ever again. And so the fact that there was anything that got through, and, you know, we were talking about this before the show. One of the things it does is closes the boyfriend loophole, which is like, so if you're in a marriage and somebody's a domestic abuser, they could take their guns. But if you're just in a normal relationship and your boyfriend's a domestic abuser, they can't take his guns. But this closed that and said, no, your guns can get confiscated if you're a domestic abuser. Full stop which is good. There's a waiting period as well now for 18-year-olds to buy guns. Yep. Except it, 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 super weak, granted, but still something, something. right? Yes. Katanji Brown-Jackson got uh, her on the court. He killed uh, Zawahiri. Again, legal issues with that, but most, I think, Normies would say for credit sure. where credit is due. You yep. just murked an al Qaeda leader. Uh, there was a George, George Floyd executive order which uh, created a registry for abusive cops. So you could sort of track the abusive cops more. There's some other pieces to that as well. Um, Lena Khan is cracking down on monopolies. Uh, you have an NLRB that's actually doing decent work now. That's
1: to me one of the most important that's things.
0: That's literally the I, reason you cited for voting for Biden. Yeah, right. that
1: was, um, there was actually just now uh, the NLRB ruled that Starbucks, number one, they illegally fired workers, but number two, you know how uh, Howard Schultz tried to come in and say like, we're going to give all these raises and benefits to everyone except the union workers. They just ruled that's illegal and are demanding that they pay back pay and reinstate these workers and you whatever. 100% you 100% would not get, that, would under not get that
0: under any Republican. Yeah. Even and the I, one who pretends the most like Josh Hawley, he ain't doing that shit.
1: And the Obama NLRB, just to make the Biden-Obama comparison, and I have to admit at that point in my political development, I was not following these decisions as closely. They were generally pro-worker as well, but they were not as aggressive in the, the Biden NLRB is actually affirmatively challenging some of the long-held kind of like assumptions of how labor organizing happens. So they've been a much more activist um, NLRB in terms of you know how this they they're actually interested in governing and advancing the ball for workers, not just maintaining a sliding status quo. So yes, I give him lots of credit there.
0: Sure. Then, then we get the Pact Act which is what John Stewart was crusading for, and he gets a lot of credit for this too, but it's True. the bill that makes it so that toxic burn pit victims can now get healthcare. Yeah. That's, you know, our veterans, that's yep. something. And by the way, the Republicans voted against that the first time, and they weren't going to vote for it until John Stewart did a fucking national tour shaming them out loud to, to their faces. Yep. Okay, so he gets credit for that. Um, the CHIPS Act, the CHIPS Act has some issues. Bernie had some questions about it. Hey, how much of this is corporate welfare, et cetera. Uh, but the whole idea behind the CHIPS Act is let's bring back microchip manufacturing to the U.S., I don't give a fuck if it was a Republican who did that or a Democrat who did it. I support that idea. Yes. So I give him credit for that as well. Uh, then you have the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, look, originally we were talking about Build Back Better. A strike against Biden is that I don't think he was an effective fighter for Build Back Better. great. And so that's a huge strike against him. But I had, after that fell apart, I was kind of resigned to, we're literally not going to get anything. Yes. Same. And so, but then the fact Everybody that was. we have the IRA and that 15% corporate tax rate is huge. There are so many Billion dollar corporations that pay nothing in taxes or get a net subsidy, so it's a negative tax rate. That's now gone. That's done. Fifteen percent corporate minimum tax rate. That's huge. Uh, tax credits for electric vehicles is in that. Uh, Sixty-four billion for Obamacare to give more people health care. Um, so, I, I, I credit. Gotta give credit. Uh, he invoked the Defense Production Act for the baby formula shortage. Um, this is one people don't give him nearly enough credit for. He either eliminated or nearly eliminated the drone war because, uh, what's, uh, what's his name? I'm blanking on the guy's name. Who's been covering this. He's been covering it in detail and he has all the numbers and you would, you would know it if I showed Scahill? you. No, it's not Scahill. Scahill did a great uh, documentary on drones, but this, this is not that. Um, anyway, there's detailed reporting on this. There's basically been, it's been at a dead standstill the drone strikes have dropped down massively. Now, the only asterisk I'll give you by that conversation is I seem to remember Trump on the way out changed the reporting rules on drone strikes. Mm-hmm. So it could be that he's still doing them, but it's just not reported now because he, Trump put a loud veil of secrecy around it that we didn't have previously. Um, but he, I, I, honestly, my guess is this. They're still doing drone strikes, but it really has dropped off massively. Yeah, because we hear there are articles whenever there are a drone drone strikes, and we like just the other day he bombed Syria, and we heard about it bombing Syria is terrible. Shouldn't have done that, but that was like one the first time in a very long time we heard about any sort of drone strikes. So he did massively reduce drone strikes, um, and then of course. He pulled out of Af- he got all the troops out of Afghanistan, all the boots on the ground out of Afghanistan. Now again, the criticism of him is that he's starving the country now and keeping right. their own money from them. But the fact that he actually took the boots on the ground out of Afghanistan, you have to give him credit for that part of it. And unfortunately, a lot of people who define themselves as anti-war were nowhere to be found to defend him when Biden did that and everybody and their mother was shitting on him in mainstream media. No Democratic politicians were coming to his defense. The Republicans were going on the offense against him. The media was relentless against him and he was the only one standing his ground was, saying fuck you on right. It was right.
1: really the first sort of dark Brandon moment of the of the administration. So, yeah. So look,
0: after going through all that, I'm going to ask you, what do you think? Do you think Biden has edged out Obama
1: now? Um I do. I mean, I, I think it's important, again, to say, of course, neither one of us thinks that any of this is remotely adequate. Um, I think, what do you call Biden? You say bare, bare, bare minimum. minimum. <laughs> I think that's yeah. that's correct. But I'll tell you the reason why I think um, overall is more of an ideological argument than a just, you know, adding up the, the wins on the Obama side and the wins on the Biden side. Number one, you have to keep in mind the context of Obama had a supermajority. Like right. think of what he could have done. So there's a right. massive opportunity cost there, which I think you can very I think you can make the case pretty clearly that if Biden had a supermajority, we would have gotten pretty close to the whole build back better initial okay. agenda. Can I say something? Yeah.
0: You just convinced me. <laughs> Seriously, I was I was going, I was thinking like it's 50-50, fifty, they're either equal or maybe Biden's slightly better. With that argument, there's no doubt. Yeah, I mean... There's no doubt he's better.
1: Listen, Democrats are wonderful at, like, making up excuses for their own, like, flailing impotence and desire to avoid governance. There's no doubt about it. Like, all the bullshit with the parliamentarian and his unwillingness to fight for anything or be tough on Manchin or any of that. But... If he had had the supermajority that Obama had, I have zero doubt that he would have done way, way more than Obama. I mean, Obama, half of the things that you said for him, like his big crowning achievements, they have a million asterisks. Next to them, I mean, oh, the Affordable Care Act is supposed to be the crowning achievement. Well, yeah,
0: I don't. To me, those that is it. That's why I said that one's mixed. Yeah, to me, the big ones were the Iran deal and the Cuba normalization. Well, those were two of his yes. best. And
1: I do think that well, Biden could really seal the deal here by getting back into the Iran <laughs> nuclear deal. So
0: okay, yes, yeah. but it's a little mixed because if he does, there's chatter that some provisions are going to get even tougher, which I think is totally unfair because yeah. we violated the deal, we pulled out of the deal, yeah, and oh we're absolutely, make more and of Iran. also
1: he dicked around for, I mean, why are we waiting this long? Right. He could have done it back. day he one. He could have done do it right it, away. Again, like is Dr. another Carson strike talks to
0: us. against Biden is that he could eliminate all the student loan debt. He could mm-hmm. legalize marijuana mm-hmm. today and he's not doing yeah, it. Yeah. But of but course, Obama, Obama could have done too. that too. And he did less than Biden did. Yeah. Well, um, actually on the on the marijuana front, Biden has done, uh, Obama did more. Did more. Because he freed more nonviolent offenders towards the end of his time in office.
1: I think probably overall on, uh, Criminal like I think ideologically, Obama is better on criminal justice and drug reform. not that he did a lot, but Biden is still uh, like nineties lock em up yeah. drug warrior. But then on
0: economics is your okay, argument. So on that economics, Biden's a little to the yes. left of and, Obama. And
1: here's where I was gonna make the sort of ideological argument. Obama's administration, which is becoming very clear from some of the voices that are speaking out against student loan debt now, including his some of his top economic advisors, his administration was full-scale, 110% neoliberalism. Like, straight up, let me just take the Clinton playbook, let me run it in the 2000s, um, you know, no devi- deviation from that whatsoever. Biden is by and large neoliberal and you see that even in the student loan debt relief which is like oh we got a means test and it's only 125 you know one hundred twenty-five thousand, and we're only going to do ten thousand, and it's got to be complex and a program and all this stuff that's sort of the neoliberal brain right rather than just doing a blanket universal simple straightforward policy to deal with the problem but the very fact that you're doing any just direct debt cancellation is an incredible uh, 180. From neoliberalism, I mean, this just this is why Larry Summers and Jason Furman and all these other people are freaking out about it. They're ripping because, Biden right
0: now. I, I yeah, know they're, they're on going, Twitter, like, oh, how, going you know, after this him is a terrible like idea, crazy.
1: And these were top Obama guys. Um, So the fact that he has, you know, on student loan, like debt cancellation is a very, very different type of thing. And the fact that you are even dabbling in that and um, setting an intellectual precedent for it is really remarkable. Direct checks, another thing that Obama would never have dreamed of doing. Now, part of this is I think that the ideological center of gravity in the country has shifted in terms of like the neoliberal orders breaking down. So you could have a bigger philosophical discussion about how much of this is like these men individually and how how much of it is they're just sort of responding to shifting political incentives and a shifting political architecture. But put that to the side for a moment. You see it not just with the student loan debt relief. You also see it with the CHIPS Act. This is like direct industrial policy that was considered, you know, off the table until very recently. You were like a knuckle dragger if you wanted the government to intervene Mm -hmm. in this kind of a direct way. You have, I think you, maybe covered this on your show but you have um huge amounts of jobs coming back from overseas true um part of that is Biden policy part of it is the fact that they their pandemic exposed how having these incredible incredibly fragile supply it's a chains national was a
0: security issue now that's was was why they're bringing them back it's a now a national security issue right
1: so but that is also a break from right. neoliberalism um and you also have you mentioned the um defense production act which was invoked for the baby formula crisis this again is like Government directing industrial policy and getting more directly involved in shaping the economy with an affirmative goal in right. mind rather than just like, yeah, we're going to kick it to so, the market and that's that.
0: So, let me tell you why I don't buy the argument that, like, hey, maybe it's just a place and time thing. And if you yeah. reverse Biden with Obama, then, you know, Biden would have acted like Obama and Obama would act like Biden now. Hmm. Here's why I don't buy that the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession is very analogous to everything that was going on in our economy with the pandemic and what Biden inherited. And so since it's so analogous, Biden, Obama had the opportunity to go full FDR, especially with a supermajority, and to really break the streak of neoliberalism, and he actively chose not to do it. Mm-hmm. Biden is in a position true. where- That's true. He's still largely upholding the neoliberal order, but there are definitely more clear breaks with it yeah. than there were under Obama. Yes. So I think that's the breakdown. Your, your point about the supermajority definitely Change my mind where I was 50 50 or maybe slightly giving the edge to Biden. I'm definitely giving the edge to Biden now. I think Biden is a better president than Obama was. And honestly, after this conversation, I don't even think it's that arguable. And, you know, and people are going to have a hard time arguing me out of it because I just look how many fucking policies did we just go through shit that they did. Right. Like we were very thorough with this shit. And again,
1: like no one's saying that it's enough or that it's, you know, look, like, we don't even need the, don't, yeah. for, we already did 84 caveats. Okay, but we just,
0: don't need it. If people are going to smear us, they're going to smear <laughs> us. Look, let me be the one to say <laughs> no, it. But if I'm people not... watch this and take that away, they are unnuanced fucking idiots looking to get offended. And that's the bottom line.
1: Yeah, that's well, the bottom I'm line. trying to be clear. I know, all.
0: but we were already clear 47 times. And I don't like, I don't care about smear artists anymore. They're, oh, well, Carl you're carrying water for Biden. he said, dark Brandon. Oh, oh. I don't give a fuck. Look how nuanced we're being here. Look how all the detail that I'm laying out for you. None of these people can give 5% the detail I just laid out if they want to smear us over this shit. So yeah, you got your caveats. You got all your nuance. All that nuance is important, but you know I'm not going to repeat it every 17 seconds so as to get a horde of angry morons off of my ass.
1: You want to talk about Sean Hannity?
0: Yeah, let's do that. That sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) So Sean Hannity is one of many Fox people who are now reacting to... uh, Um, the student loan debt reduction that Biden announced. And I mean, these guys are really all to be fair to Hannity. He never pretended like he was a populist, but everybody on the right, whether they pretend to be a populist or they're old school conservative, they're really showing their ass cheeks to the world now and showing how they are deeply anti-working class. So let's take a look.
2: So in other words, what a, a bailout plan for rich people to send their kids to school and what's so bad about working your way through school? Because I did it. And I decided once I got behind a radio microphone, I didn't want to finish my last year or year plus, whatever it was. And and I followed my passion, followed my dreams. I never had any hope I'd ever be successful. But when you really think about it, you know, who who is going to benefit the most from this? Wall Street Journal editorial board said student loan forgiveness is an inflation expansion act. College costs have soared multiple times the rate of inflation over the last 50 years. And the people that likely will benefit the most are middle class. You know, think about it. You get out of college, you're not making a lot of money. We have a lot of young people that work on my TV show. They're not making 125 grand. They're now eligible to get in some cases up to 20,000 and other cases 10,000. And this is new green deal radical socialism. This is the push for, oh, we're going to incentivize. They're actually telling poor people that they should go into debt so they can get their solar panels. How stupid is that? It's insane. Anyway, this is very perverse incentives. And this is a reckless economic decision on every single level. And the student, loan, student debt loan forgiveness, I am telling you, colleges are loaded. They are rich. They are making phenomenal amounts of money. Their endowments are massive. That's, yeah, so we should nationalize those too, right?
1: That solar panel thing really came out of nowhere. He, I mean, but that, that he's just—he's just just literally a field.
0: talking point machine. You pull the string on his back, and he says whatever the RNC Socialism, talking points are of that. Socialism, Green New day.
1: Deal. It's, it's this, yeah. hes so
0: I don't know how anybody listens to him and takes him seriously. But let's <laughs> let's run through this, okay?
1: <laughs> to make the student loan debt thing somehow about the green new? I don't know. Anyway, go ahead.
0: So, okay. At the beginning, he says, this is a bailout plan for the rich. Now he's going to go on to contradict himself and we'll get to that. But at the beginning, he says it's a bailout plan for the rich. 100% horseshit. He's flat out lying to you. Even Sean Hannity is smart enough to know that what he's saying, there is a lie. 90% of the benefits go to people who make $75,000 a year or less. And they have a cap at $125,000. Now, by the way, I don't even support that. I want to do full, total student yeah. debt uh, elimination. Yeah. Right. And they would use those attacks against somebody like me if I did something like that. But the fact of the matter is, the really, the really rich, the wealthy, the people who are, you know are really that top one percent. Yeah.
1: They don't have fucking student loans. Well, here's the other piece that nobody talks about is the fact that the the wealthy already get a massive tax break and give and like handout. For their kids to go to college in these tax savings plan, 529 tax savings plans, $37 billion a year goes towards that. And so basically you only benefit from that if you've got, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year that you can sock away. Weird, he's never attacked advantage. that. That's so funny. Strange, Very right? Very strange. Isn't that strange? Yeah,
0: it's almost like he supports the rich while well, he pretends to do the opposite. Yes. Um, so then he goes on to say like, I worked through school, bro. When you went to college... School cost 37 cents and a Pop-Tart. Like that shit, it was nothing. It was nothing. I mean, Biden actually talked about this the other day. He said, back in the day, Pell Grants covered 80% of the cost of school. Now it's 32%. Wow. And he's complaining about this, the most pro-working class thing Biden ever did. Which gets to the next point, because he said, at one point he slipped up there and he said, quote, the people that likely will benefit the most are middle class. So wait, you just said it's a bailout for the rich. Now you're saying that people are, okay. Now that part is true. It is mostly going to help middle-class people. But then, you know, they move the goalposts when they say that. And the argument is, why are you not helping the poor? You should help the poor, not the middle-class. Yeah,
1: because they're deeply concerned about the plight of the poor. You see it in everything Sean Hannity does. And
0: that's the exact point I made because Tucker made a similar argument to it. And I was like, if Biden came out today and said, you know what? This isn't fair. All the people who already paid off all their student loan, uh, all their student loans, I'm going to send them a check for $10,000 each.
1: Oh, they'd lose their mind. <laughs> they'd no, be I mean, like, this, this is
0: Venezuela. This
1: is crazy. Right, exactly. I mean, that's the thing is the, the logical extension of their argument here is like, actually, we should just send $10,000 checks to everyone. Correct. To which we'd be like, great. Yeah, I'd
0: be baited. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Fucking do <laughs> Absolutely. that shit in a They would
1: never want to do it. But no, they just want to use this pseudo intellectual claptrap to try to just keep anyone from ever doing anything. And that's the issue I have too with listen, hey, I mean, the arguments about like the whole universe system is bloated and it's too expensive and all. That's all 100% true. it. How does that argue against doing this thing right now to help the people who have been screwed over by the system? It
0: doesn't. Like it Not actually argues bit. in
1: favor. You're saying like these people got ripped off by these overly expensive universities. Okay, well that's a case in favor of taking this limited action. Should it just be a start and we should do a lot more including cancel all the debt and make college free? Yes do that but that is not in any way an argument against taking this limited step right now. Um, so the really great part, though, is when he exposes how much contempt he has for his own workers. Right. When he's like... You want to give these assholes a like, 10 grand or 20 I got grand? A, I got a Fuck bunch of young of people who work for me. I'm not paying them well at all. They benefit from this and that's terrible. It's what like, wait, brick. what? You just revealed like five terrible things about yourself inadvertently right there.
0: <laughs> Unbelievable. The thing I can't stand is, and you've seen a lot of this on Twitter too, this like, I'm the middle-class whisperer and I'm going to tell you what they think. I know. And they make these arguments. I saw a bunch of things like, See, this bothers me too. You're going to tell some elite, uh, you know, upper middle-class person to pay for the person who's changing the bedpans in the nursing home? The fuck are you talking about? Again, this is 90% of the benefits to people who make $75,000 a year or less. This is helping those exact people you're pretending it's hurting, you fucking scumbags.
1: Yes, agreed. I mean, again, it's all fake concern for the working class. It's totally disingenuous. It's not like, you know, for one person to get this debt relief, you're like taking it directly out of the pocket of some, you know, poor person. That's not the way that federal government budgeting works. That's not the way this system works. A lot of this debt was honestly never going to get paid back because it's so astronomical and um, so beyond what is within the means of people to pay within their lifetime. So, no, I mean, their arguments are silly absurd i have
0: zero sympathy i mean when you look
1: here's here's the other thing and you and i've been talking about this is there's a very caricaturish view of who has student loan debt correct because yeah. you know i was thinking about some of the lead organizers for starbucks who are starbucks baristas are four-year college degree holders right The face of like you know the working class is not the same as Sean Hannity's apparent image of like you know the dude in the they only think it's
0: white dudes in hard hats. That's it. And they're like forty seven years old. That's that's the only people that they think
1: count. There are so many people who you know they got the four year degree, but the economy was shit and they couldn't get uh, you know a job that really paid the bills, or you know they're working a blue collar job or they're working a service sector job because that's what our economy has created. Thanks to you know ideological assholes aligned with Sean Hannity. There's a lot of people who started college and because it's so fucking expensive couldn't finish. Right. And so now they have the debt but they don't have the degree to enable them to go into some sort of other career and so they also are working, you know, at Starbucks or in an Amazon warehouse. So they also have this just willful misunderstanding of who will benefit from this and what the actual working class is like and the other part that really bothers me is this assumption that people are so small-minded that they'll feel like if someone else is benefiting from this and I'm not directly benefiting for, from it even though it's good for them I'm just going to be mad and jealous over it like Sorry, that's not my experience of working class people. <laughs> and it's, getting, it's
0: helping 43 million people. That's a gigantic that's a chunk of the country. Of and then the point you made to me last night, which is 100% correct is, well, what about all the family members of those 43 million people who aren't directly helped by it, but somebody they love and care about is being directly helped yeah, by it. Or
1: they've been helping out with the payment sometimes when times are tough. I mean, there's huge, huge potential... Um, Beneficial spillover effects. You you pointed to some of the sort of business creation creation potential, potential for people to purchase a house and get into the housing market. three hundred thousand new
0: home purchases if we did student loan debt elimination. So obviously that's gonna help it. And yeah, there's a there's a, a direct connection between if they have if there's a lot of student loan debt, there's a much lower rate of entrepreneurship and small business creation. So again, if you're in favor of small businesses, if you're in favor of entrepreneurship, you should be in favor of wiping the debt slate clean. But honestly, the argument I always come back to, which is the only one that matters to me, is an argument from principle. Like, I wouldn't even care if everything we're talking about now to this point wasn't true. I don't care. I think in a civilized society, there are certain things you take off the table. That includes education. A college degree today is equal to what a high school degree used to be back in the day, right? So, and we already have in this country free public education K to 12, right? It should be preschool to, through college. So it, all we're talking about is to treat college the exact same way that you treat public high school, That's all we're talking about. And nobody in their right mind has ever come out of the woodworks, even in today's modern day and age with psycho far-right people saying, you know, we should really uh, individualize and privatize this public high school thing and make all of them private so only wealthy people can afford to go to them and saddle other kids with student debt to go to high school. Everybody would say, this is psychotic. This is a scam. Why the fuck are you talking about that? But with college, everybody just accepts it because there's a bias that people have that drives me crazy. It's, It's a bias towards the way things already work, like a status quo bias, where they just are like incapable of thinking even two inches outside of the box to think like, well, you know, other countries don't do this. There's a better way to do this. Right now we're shaking people down and they just want to defend it. Like it works like this now, so how could it change?
1: Yeah. As if like we've already
0: reached the end of history and
1: already solved everything. It's fucking crazy. Not a failure of the imagination of most of the American people. That's an intentional ploy by people who benefit from the status quo to keep things as they are. Correct.
0: So, and I said this the other day on Twitter, I'll stand by it. If somebody is trying to make the argument that this is an anti-working class move, they're either a total liar or they have porridge for brains. Because I, there's no, I don't see any other way around it. You're either lying or you're an idiot. There's no way around it. Yeah. I mean, it's the most obviously straightforward, clear-cut thing I've ever seen in my life. Canceling $10,000 of debt for people who desperately need that debt, cancel. By the way, 90% of student loan holders were like, I can't afford it if we're going to restart it. I just can't afford it. And you're going to wag your finger and say this is helping elites? Go fuck yourself. No way. Yeah. No way.
1: Yeah, the, the attempt to twist like opposing debt cancellation into a populist position is really something to say. Really something to say.
0: It frustrates me so much. You have no idea. No idea. Because I'd at least like people, if you're going to disagree, at least be fucking honest about it. At least be honest about how you're disagreeing and what the consequences are of that disagreement. Yeah, I want these people who I know are working class to have to struggle a little bit because they gotta pull themselves up by their bootstrapped and, mm-hmm. and you know, you made the deal, you signed the paper, there's a, you know, the contract is valid and blah, blah, blah. Makes one of those arguments. Yeah. At least then it's it's honest.
1: Yeah. Meanwhile, another another three billion dollar aid package, military aid package to Ukraine sails through and all their concerns about like we're spending too much money. Not not Crystal. a peep. Not a piece. You, you know, we can do this all day. How many <laughs> trillions of
0: dollars did we sent, send to Wall Street to bail them out? How mm-hmm. many trillions of dollars? The war in Iraq when all said and done is going to cost seven trillion dollars. Well, seven trillion.
1: Ken okay. Klippenstein made a great point when Larry Summers was, you know, Larry Summers like tearing this thing to shred. He's just losing his mind over the debt cancellation because it really is a sort of direct rebuke of the ideology that he has spent his lifetime pursuing. I mean, again, it's like a nibble around the edges, but it is a direct rebuke of that um, sort of radical neoliberal ideology. And Klittenstein was like, yeah, we're going to listen to the guy who was the architect of the Wall Street bailouts be like, oh, we can't give $10,000 to people who are piled up with a mountain of lifetime of debt. Wasn't he also the architect of
0: Graham Leach Bliley, which repealed Glass-Steagall? I think he was. Very the, possible. The wall of separation between commercial banking and investment banking. Yeah. I think it was Larry Summers who was like, we're going to go ahead and get rid of that, which turned it into a casino. You go and you put your money in your local bank now, and you don't know what the fuck they're doing with it. They're making all these high risk, uh, you know, gambling trades with it now. Yeah, you looking up if that's
1: Larry Summers? Yes, it is. Uh, hold on. When glad- Instead of speaking out against the irresponsible Graham Leach-Bliley Act. Let's see. Let's see what it says here. He didn't. He certainly was not against it. We'll say that.
0: So who was the architect of it? I thought it was the architect of it. Graham. Does it not say?
1: Uh, peaked with the packet. Yeah, he was involved. He was involved.
0: That motherfucker's behind almost every single shitty neoliberal I mean, Democrat. He, he
1: really was. Is the. He is a major architect of the sort of neoliberal economic architecture that we have lived under for 30 years.
0: So the Democrats that act like Republicans, you have this guy to thank for it. Mm-hmm. So can cl- keep dunking on him. Yeah, please. That's, why they're, that. that's
1: why they're freaking out about yeah. all of this. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, to continue our discussion about education and uh, what matters there and some of the uh, attacks on public education, in particular, as I mentioned before, we have Eric Blunk. Um, he writes a lot for Jacobin. He's got a great book called Red State Revolt about the teachers strike, the red red t- teacher strikes that happened in uh, mostly red states, which is a very interesting phenomenon. A lot going on to talk to him about. Let's get to it. Eric, great to see you. Thank you so much for being with us.
3: Yeah, it's great to be on.
1: So when I first reached out about um, us uh, having a chat, it was in reference to, I've been seeing all these articles about there's teacher shortage anecdotally. I know in my own public education system where my kids go, um, they've been struggling with getting enough teachers in certain slots. So I wanted to talk to you about that. But in the meantime, there were some interesting election results in terms of school boards down in Florida. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis endorsed a bunch of conservatives. They effectively took over uh, a number of school boards in the state. Just to break down for us a little bit of those electoral results and what you read into it.
3: Right. So the big story here is that Florida and to a certain extent other states like Arizona have been at the center of a cultural war in which Koch brother-funded politicians like DeSantis have really tried to polarize the public against public education using the framework of critical race theory and then some of the real grievances and dilemmas of the pandemic um, and the school shutdowns to really demonize educators as much as possible. And this is part of a long-term, decades-long project to privatize, dismantle public education, which is really the last bastion of the public sector in the U.S and teachers unions are the strongest unions in the country. So if you can get rid of public education teachers unions, this is a huge win for the billionaire class. And so that's the background for this very concerted drive of politicians like dissenters and Republicans to um, really create an astroturf campaign of parents with some legitimate grievances, but then turning those towards uh, school boards and elected officials and against teachers. And so what you see uh, in Florida was uh, this being relatively successful, unfortunately, um, in school districts across the country. DeSantis has, uh, endorsed candidates, which is pretty rare for a governor to endorse school board candidates, uh, overwhelmingly won. So what you see is Florida is really ground zero for the cultural war side of the education struggle, if not the class struggle side.
0: So what's the end goal here? Is the end goal like to dismantle the teachers unions, sort of lower pay and also implement what Trump flirted with at the end of his time in office, which is like a patriotic education curriculum where they sort of highlight all the things they like about America and downplay all whatever negative things there are. Is that the end goal? What do you think the end goal is?
3: I think there's two end goals and they're overlapping. For politicians and Republicans specifically, the end goal is getting elected. I think, you know, this is their main driving incentive and it might be as simple as this. So if you can uh, focus voters attention on these types of wedge issues, then it's going to make it easier to get elected, even if you're representing the billionaire class. So this is just classic Republican pol- politics that even though you're representing the one percent, uh, if you can focus people's attention to um sort of cultural war issues, then this is your path to electoral success. So that's for politicians. That overlaps with um, a kind of deeper, more long-term structural political push by the Koch brothers and billionaires to dismantle public services and destroy unions. So as I mentioned before, public education is a bastion of both of these. So focusing on uh, critical race theory, focusing on some of the grievances that arose from the pandemic, these are beneficial politicians but ultimately they're uh, even more beneficial i think to the billionaires who are going to make you know large amounts of profits and are already starting to off of getting students into private schools and getting students into uh, charters and all of these other mechanisms that they have to really uh, destroy the public education system for the benefit of private corporations
1: And I think it goes even one layer deeper than that, Eric, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're right to point out, I mean, this is an ideological project that dates back to before I think any of us were around. Um, And part of the just outright opposition to the public education system is just that it seems kind of socialist-y, you know, that has – it's founded on these sort of communal – public communitarian values that are antithetical to a radical libertarian kind of like corporations overall view of the world. And so that's why this project has been engaged in and they kind of use, you know, whatever bubbles up at the moment that they can to convince people that ah, actually the teachers unions are bad, actually public education. You know, we need to cut, cut the funding. We need to have charter schools. We need to have vouchers. We need to move away from the system. They just use whatever's available to them at the moment to prosecute that Case.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. That's certainly a dimension of it. I, sometimes I, I de emphasize that because uh, I think there's a risk of thinking that these are, uh, you know, th- these are actually very cynical maneuvers uh, on, from above. And so I, I think we should acknowledge that. But at the same time, you're right. They see ideologically um, that public education and teachers' unions uh, in particular are pushing a kind of more liberal, progressive type of politics. Whether this is the main driving force is unclear, but certainly they want to be able to directly indoctrinate uh, new generations with a more reactionary conservative type politics. And I think they're pretty aware that overall the trend is moving away from them, that younger generations tend to be much more radical. And so that freaks them out. And so this is certainly a part of their project, which is to try to figure out how they can maintain some sort of long-term legitimacy.
0: So I read the other day that the teacher shortage is 300,000. Is that is that an accurate number? Yeah, there's a lot of
3: debate on the numbers. the The best estimates are that an average of forty five percent to seventy five percent of districts have some degree of teacher wow. shortage. So that's that's probably the best estimate we have.
0: So what's the main thing? And I, I mean, you could name multiple things if that's the correct answer here. But what's the main thing you attribute that to? Because from a layman's perspective, looking at it from a distance, I feel like it coincided very well with the pandemic and COVID. That's when we sort of started to see the decline. And then I don't know exactly what perpetuated it and continued it, but speak to that a little bit.
3: Sure. There's a lot of combined factors. I'll try to hit the main ones. In part, this is actually not a recent phenomenon. It's important that there's been a teacher shortage for years now. Um, So that's actually really important to stress because the overall driving um, problems predate the pandemic. So you're talking about Low pay, teacher pay, for instance, in the last 10 years has declined on average across the U.S. by $2,000. And you're talking about just understaffing, particularly in low income school districts. So this type of burnout just gets uh, exacerbated then by the pandemic. I'm not sure if you saw, there was a Gallup poll recently came out that teachers are the most burnt out workers in the whole country. So, what you have then is a perfect storm in which long standing problems. It's just very hard to be a teacher given the underfunding of schools uh, in the US, short staffing, big class sizes, things like this. Then, with the pandemic, in which you have uh, an impossible task of trying to teach remotely and then a really concerted political campaign against teachers across the country from Republicans made it almost impossible for you know, millions of teachers to do their jobs right. And so right now, I think the recent statistics are that between a third and, and half of teachers are considering quitting by the end of the year. So I think it's that perfect storm was really the uh, driving force.
1: Yeah, what I read is that it is very hard to get a grasp on exactly what the numbers are because there's no sort of uniform reporting. Um, But anecdotally, you've got rural school districts in Texas, I'm reading from, I believe this is a Washington Post article, are switching to four-day weeks this fall due to lack of staff. You can imagine the chaos that throws working families into. That is base, though.
0: Four-day weeks. Sorry.
1: Sorry to interrupt.
0: (laughs) I like four-day work weeks.
1: Florida is asking veterans with no teaching background to enter classrooms. Arizona is allowing college students to step in and instruct children. Um, The teacher shortage in America it's hit crisis levels and school officials everywhere are scrambling to ensure that as students return to classrooms, someone will be there to educate them. As you point out, a lot of these problems predate COVID. Covid becomes an exacerbating factor, and I think for a lot of teachers, the experience of trying to teach on Zoom was just an absolutely miserable one. Um, I know because I come from a family of educators. Also, some of the divisive politics around Covid were extremely stressful for um, teachers to be able to navigate. Um, You know, you had some parents who were very adamant in one direction, some were very adamant in another direction, Mm -hmm. and that was something that they, you know, didn't want to deal with and weren't prepared to deal with and shouldn't have had to deal with, frankly. Um, But you also have just this really simple, straightforward, baseline economic fact that considering how highly educated teachers are, they just aren't paid very well. Um, when does that start? What are the underlying factors that led to that economic reality?
3: Yeah, the teacher pay um, decline really goes back to the 90s. And in many ways, people forget this story, that tax on teacher unions and teacher pay that comes with this, really is driven by neoliberal democrats this is overwhelmingly a neoliberal democratic project for decades um, and mm. it gets most exacerbated under the obama administration so you've seen a few decades of declining or stagnating teacher pay um, exacerbated exacerbated by the great recession and the obama policies of uh, really attacking teachers unions which historically like in all industries have been the main bastion For uh, propping up wages and good working conditions. So, this is a decades-long problem that has uh, exacerbated most recently with the Obama administration, the Great Recession, and then the recent pandemic fuel debates.
1: One of the things that we saw in the teacher strike wave um, that you covered very closely and that I saw, you know, from the ground level in West Virginia and Kentucky was that um, those states had cut education funding really to the bone. And uh, the teacher strikes were about their own working conditions and um, pensions and those sorts of things. But they were also about the fact that you just had, you know, a public education funding stripped over years and years and years where they felt like the kids were also not being given the education and the support and the resources that they deserve. Where does that start and what does that picture look like today?
3: Yeah, this is a really good new development. Historically, sometimes teachers unions have um, been quite controversial because they, when they strike just for their own demands, it can be particularly polarizing because working class parents are sort of thrown into crisis for obvious reasons. The turn towards a more social justice type unionism really begins at the 2012 Chicago teachers strike that highlighted demands like smaller class sizes, um, kind of a broader social justice demands like having nurses and counselors in the schools. This is a tradition that starts in 2012 in Chicago, but then explodes in the 2018 red state teacher strikes that you mentioned, West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, in which the central demands aren't about pay, but they're about more funding for students so that, you know, they have textbooks that aren't 20 years old, that they can uh, be in classrooms in which you don't have leaking roofs, just really basic infrastructure problems that the U.S. school system has, unlike most other developed countries. These were the demands that became central to the Red for Ed movement, and they still are central. I think because of that, the movement hasn't fully retreated despite uh, the stresses of the last couple of years.
0: So talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, potential solutions. And I know it's very complex and it's hard to answer that question. But when Bernie was running, for example, he proposed, I think it's paying uh, all teachers in America at least $60,000. Um, does there have to be some readjustment in terms of the level of higher education that you need in order to become a teacher? What do you think are some solutions to to what we're looking at here?
3: There's a lot of really good data and research on this, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's already schools across the country, public schools across the country, that are um, keeping teachers, that are doing a great job in educating students. And the baseline factor for these schools is they get enough resources. That's primarily funding, but not just. And so you can look at what are called community schools in Los Angeles or other country, in other parts of the country. And what you see there is they have smaller class sizes, you have higher teacher pay, so teachers aren't quitting. And you have um, financial support, so you have enough counselors, you have enough arts, you have enough sports. When you have the resources to provide those types of support systems, then teachers don't quit. Uh, Students like being there. Parents don't take their students out of the public school system, thereby exacerbating funding problems. So I think ultimately the solution is more funding for public schools. But together with that, you also need funding going in the right places, which is why you need unions, because you can fund sorts of things that are ineffective for actually um, improving schools. So I think it's the combination of building the movement from below and making sure that the money from above is getting uh, allocated in the right places.
0: Now, is there a way to to impact that from a federal level? Because I know the way that schools are funded is usually at the, the local level. So is there is there an avenue where you do that, where it's not challenged by some insane federalist society, super conservative group that <laughs> tries to slap it down? Sure. I mean, there's recent examples
3: of this. For for all my pretty strong critiques of the Biden administration, one of the good things the administration did early on was through the stimulus plan actually did provide billions of dollars for public schools um, to get them through the worst of the pandemic. And so some of that funding is still um, sort of propping up some of the hardest hit school districts across the country. So yeah, the federal government can and should be intervening more. Part of the problem, as you mentioned, is that there's such unevenness in public schools, precisely because the federal government has had a hands-off approach. So I think that uh, a more robust national funding and statewide funding for public schools would be part of that. But that's not going to happen unless the unions stop sort of just sucking up to the Democrats and really put more pressure from below on them
1: talk a little bit more about that. Um, Give give me some concrete examples of where they've sort of just towed the line with the Democratic Party instead of standing up to them when they should.
3: Sure. I mean, the the best example here is that for decades, the unions actually went along with the neoliberal democratic turn on education. Instead of challenging privatization, instead of challenging charters, instead of really challenging underfunding, uh, there was a really tacit acceptance that That was a a necessary reality, given the conditions. And that only Mm -hmm. changed, really, with the 2018 teacher strikes, which said, no, enough is enough. This is ridiculous. We're going to fight both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, The strike wave spread to Los Angeles and Chicago and put pressure on neoliberal Democratic uh, mayors and state governors to provide more funding for schools. And so because of that, Really, more radical bottom up movement. Then the mainstream unions, and this is a big shift over the last three four years, have really changed their tune on privatization, education uh, reform, quote unquote. And because now the official unions, you know, the national leaderships, the NEA and the AFT, have sort of been pressured from below from their ranks, they in turn uh, have pressured the Democratic Party. And this is a significant shift. So Biden's platform that he ran on, you know, and certainly Warren and particularly Bernie. Um, further to the left, was actually a significant sea change away from certainly Obama. So the Biden administration, at least on paper, um, has given lip service to many of the demands of the movement. And so you have seen a pretty significant uh, shift and pressure from below make a real difference.
1: Hmm, Very interesting. One of the things that I really saw um, in West Virginia and in Kentucky is that, yeah, the politics of how you feel about teachers and public education does not break down uh, along sort of neat partisan lines. I mean, West Virginia is a very red state right now and yet they really led, led the nation in terms of having a statewide strike that um, you know was a real was a real burden on working class families who relied on being able to send their kids to school every day so that they could then go and do their work and do what they needed to do, but it was wildly supported by the, uh, the local population. And what I also, you know, have uh, come to realize is that, especially in a lot of rural small towns, you know, the school is a real center of the community. The teachers are real sort of stalwarts of the community. These are some of the better, sort of more, you know, solidly middle-class jobs. So these are people who are really seen as kind of aspirational figures and leaders within the community. So attacks on them feel very personal. It's not as, you know, sort of a, an arm's length distance, distance relationship as you might have in an urban setting.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. There's something about the school system that connects uh, its workers to the broader community just because of the nature of education. There's links to the broader working class that's pretty rare. Maybe hospitals are another um, exception. But so what this means is it does cross across uh, partisan lines. I was, uh, you know, really moved in the West Virginia strike, but it really across the strikes in 2018, to see people who said they had voted for Trump come out and go on strike against a Republican governor. And so I think that the dynamics of the strikes and around public education generally should give us some hope, as uh, difficult as it might seem right now, that people can get over kind of a cultural polarization and uh, look towards their class interests. But that requires people taking the initiative to initiate these fights. I've been surprised at the extent to which Democrats... Um, has still not highlighted the fight for education as a winning um, demand and as a winning really electoral uh, slogan that could rally some of the people who are wavering or rally some of the people who might be hesitant. This is a type of issue that has really broad appeal and the Democrats have given more lip service. Than um, real focus on it for, for the most part.
1: Well, here's something that I'd be curious to get your take on, Eric, because it seems to me Republicans are right about one thing, which is that education and what is taught in the classroom is inherently political. And as much as we'd like to pretend like, oh no, we're just going to neutral, teach the facts, teach the history. Like as leftists, we know that that's not really that's not really possible. You know, you're going to have choices about what you focus on, how you cover it, what lens is applied to it, what's required, what's not required, what's visible, what's invisible. So for example, you know, um, in West Virginia for many years, it was banned to teach that state's labor history in terms of the mine wars, which was, you know, this extraordinary event in national history, in state history, and it was pushed by capitalists off the table from being taught in those schools whatsoever. So Republicans are correct. That this is an area that deserves focus, attention, organization, that there is an ideological battle going on, and it seems to me like Democrats have mostly made the choice to just say like, "We don't want to talk about it and we just want to stay out of it and actually none of this none of these choices are political at all. I don't see their counter to what the Republicans are pushing right now
3: right i, th- I think I think that's exactly right and part of this speaks to the absence of a coherent worldview or ideology from the Democratic Party generally, unlike the True. Republicans. And so because they don't actually have some sort of uh, robust vision that they want to project, they tend to, on the education issue, but like in politics generally, pivot away from uh, like a, a strong case for why, yeah, it makes sense to um, talk about Uh, certain issues, whether it's labor or even make a strong case for why basic anti-racism in schools is fine. There's a way to make that case in which you don't sound uh, sort of crazy to a lot of people. There's ways to make a case for talking about social justice issues and for critical thinking and for pairing these two, because to my mind, these are um, indissociable. There's a way to make that case. but. (laughs) I really wouldn't hold my breath for Democratic Party politicians uh, to make that case, in part because they themselves don't really subscribe, I think, to a coherent worldview that could really articulate that.
0: True. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it's so much more complex than anybody wants to give it credit for to build a curriculum for a school, because, you know, you have, there were plenty of critiques and some I think were valid of like the, uh, what was it, the 1619 project? Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, you got Trump on the other side who's arguing for like, basically let's tell the most comical.
1: Let's just literally whitewash yeah, the history. Yeah, caricatured
0: version of of U.S. history where you like downplay all the negative things like the slavery and and Jim Crow, etc. Yeah. Play up like Ronald Reagan is objectively the greatest president ever, like stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So like, so it, it's a difficult thing because, it you know, it's hard to remove politics from something that's inherently political. So you almost have to, in a very independent, high minded way, walk the line where you can Discuss all of the good things about the country and all the bad things about the country, and give like a retelling that sort of hits all the broad strokes. But you it, know, it's almost like no matter how you do that, you're going to run into yeah, it's, a lot of a lot of tension it's and a lot inherently
1: political. Of course, so, so right, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think this does get back to like the core of neoliberal brain, which is that Democrats in the Bill Clinton, Barack Obama era, they don't actually want to have an affirmative like. Values, vision, principles. The whole idea of neoliberalism is like, we'll just kick all the hard decisions to the market and see what happens. Something like this, where you're talking about what are our kids going to learn and what are the values that are part of that, you know, liberals and the sort of Anybody left of center has a little bit of an advantage in the public education system just because this is this inherently communal environment um, because most teachers are um, women who have tended, in, you know, uh, tended to be more uh, liberal than the overall population. Now you have these are also college educated people who tend to be more liberal than the average population population. But there's no uh, getting around having to actually fight for what you think that curriculum should be. And those choices are going to be inherently political. So when I look at DeSantis making this very clear project— endorsing school board candidates and saying, these are my people who are going to, you know, on these local school boards, which are really significant, which touch a lot of people's lives, they're going to do what I think is the right thing to do. And Democrats offer basically like no vision or alternative. I'm like, yeah, of course, those candidates won because something beats nothing every single time.
3: I think that's right. And it, it goes to a deeper problem, which is that the Democrats and certainly the Republicans don't acknowledge that outside of the school system, the entire ideological framework of society is already telling young people a story about the way the world works and about history. So there is no like neutral world in which we live in which you can pretend to be neutral. But Mm. to then uh, acknowledge this point, to acknowledge the overwhelming influence of capitalist ideas uh, over society as a whole, that gives a lever for critical thinking to become even more important in schools. And you can make a case, I think this is right, that schools are one of the few mechanisms through which people in our current society um, can be given another way of looking at the world and of their agency that is different from what you will just be taught from corporate controlled media and just from the kind of pressures from living under the society. But you would have to acknowledge that we live in a capitalist society in which that influence is real before you can make a case for schools as a kind of critical counterweight to that basic hegemonic ideology. And that's the ultimate irony of the Republicans. They they talk about pretending that they're very subversive, but really what they're doing is just promoting the same ideas that are already the sea in which we live in. Yeah. I think it's also good to call them out directly on that. But the Democrats, for obvious reasons, uh, are hesitant to do that.
1: Yeah. And then the last question I have for you, Eric, which is kind of like a gigantic one, is what do you think our public education system should be doing? What should be the goal of the K-12 to plus if you think people should go to college? Like, what should people get out of that at the end as sort of what their takeaway is?
3: Yeah, that's a mega question. Um, (laughs) My first thing I would say is that you can't separate education from society. So I don't think we should be looking at education as just about teaching people, although that's a part of it, but teaching is inherently connected to social transformation, you know, for good or for ill. And you know, people are gonna go into the rest of the society after they graduate. So at this moment in world and US history, I think we should make an affirmative case that the school system should be doing things like training young people to uh, prevent catastrophic climate change. And so that's both learning science and learning about uh, you know, the social systems that led to climate catastrophe or leading to climate catastrophe, but also giving people very practical skills, right? There's a way to bring back into the education system some things that are lost, which is more of the hands-on aspect of education. And I think if you were able to do that, if you just take the climate example as one uh, case study, then education A would be more interesting, right? It wouldn't just come off as um, sort of facts that you need to memorize and then forget the next day. It would seem and become more connected to people's uh, lives and their potential livelihoods. And I think that that's the spirit that we can be uh, trying to imbue, that there's a practical aspect to education that will not just make your life better, but make society better.
1: Yeah. And that that practical aspect isn't just like doing what the boss tells you to do. in this <laughs> very comply, authoritarian kind of direction. Um, Eric, thank you so much. Um, your reporting on these issues has always been invaluable and incredibly important for myself personally, but for so many people across the country. It's so great to have you today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, our pleasure. So very interesting talking to Eric. I always follow him really closely because he really has his sort of finger on the pulse of these battles, which can be trivialized as culture wars. Um, But, you know, I think the right has had a very clear ideological project that they've been engaged in for decades that it's important not to lose sight of. But I wonder what you think of like that question I asked Eric at the end of what the ideal education should be? Like, what should we want, want to instill in our kids after 12 years or 14 years or whatever it is?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I think it's a very, very complex answer because, um, you know, some people would say you want the education system to sort of be like as inoffensive as possible to the majority of the population. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it sort of summed up in a little soundbite, right? Mm. But,
1: then, but that's difficult. In terms of the political leanings
0: Correct. of Correct, yeah. But here's why that's difficult. In 1958, to be inoffensive would have meant in the South being vehemently pro-segregation. Yes. You couldn't have questioned that. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So I don't think that's the exact right standard. So what I'll say is this. These, these, this is what I, I feel for sure. I'll tell you the part I'm 100% sure I'll, on, then I'll tell you the part I'm so-so on. Um, but you definitely want to give as objective as humanly possible in analysis and retelling of history. Now, there's gonna be disagreements as to what is an objective retelling of history, but as close as one can get to that, which means, yes, when you're talking about the history of the United States, you talk about the fact that we did a Native American genocide, there was slavery, there was Jim Crow, there was segregation, um, but you you balance that by talking about the good parts, the Civil Rights Movement, Now, again, I get that some people will be like, well, that's not a good part, but that's, I think those people are wrong, right? (laughs) So like civil rights movement, New Deal era. That's how like you
1: can't avoid some like judgment calls and political decisions. Well, so that gets to the
0: second part of what I was going to say. So in other words, tell the good and the bad. I want to see the good and the bad. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, downplay the bad or play up the good or vice versa. I don't want to play up the bad and downplay the good. I want to totally, I want to, everything out there on the table, just the facts first. In terms of the value judgments, Yes, I think there are broad, um, there are broad value judgments that are reasonable enough to make where in certain contexts, nobody questions it, right? Like when you say Nazi's bad. Right. Most people are going to (laughs) be like, well, obviously, right? Yeah. But you have to, it's almost like take that same mindset that you apply on the Nazi front and try to apply it everywhere. You know, and so that means, yes, you're going to have to make some value judgments. You're going to have to come to the conclusion, you know, and I think this is based on the historical record that, for example, massive deregulation of banks and Wall Street is not a good thing. Right. (laughs) You know, like I want that taught. I want that taught because I think the evidence is overwhelming on that front. There's one value judgment. You know, generally striving towards equality is a good thing. Right. right. That doesn't mean that you blindly close your eyes and say everything that's a part of CRT is correct, because I don't even think that's accurate. I think there is some stuff in that camp that stretches to, well, there's we're some so like, anti-racist that we're going to be racist against white people. You know what I'm saying? Right. So you have to, you have to walk that balance properly, but it's, it's, there's a give and take and it's difficult and you have to do it in perpetuity moving forward. There are no solid answers in a field that's so mushy is my point.
1: The court, not to go down the CRT rabbit hole, because I agree with you that, especially when you see some of the materials that can't come out of the, like, consultants who yeah, make math their is living racist, off this stuff. you know, all not, that stupid shit. I mean, not just that, but, like, the the things, you know, uh, math is anti-black. Like, the That's goofiest... What I just said, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the goofiest... Um, extremes of that, uh, I'm totally on board. But the core idea of CRT is just saying like racism isn't just about like individual bad people. It's It's about about systems and structures, which is true. So like having that core insight, which I think is a much uh, healthier and much more uh, actionable way of thinking about racism than just like, oh, we just got to like get the bad people out that are wearing the white hoods. You know, having that in the classroom is actually, I think, good and important. It's just been, they just pick all the silliest stuff. And, you know, I think liberals have allowed this to, to take hold. And people on the left, like, don't question any of the excesses there that make it so anti-racist, it's racist.
0: So here I agree with your analysis. Yeah. I think that the right is really unnuanced, And what they do is they do cherry pick the most absurd aspects of mm-hmm. CRT or anything else. And then they play that up as if that defines the entire thing, which it definitely does not. Yeah. I, I think maybe, maybe only 5% of the people who criticize CRT have ever read any piece of work on CRT, Mm -hmm. an academic piece of work on CRT. So I do think it's cherry picking. I do think it's unnuanced, nuanced. Um, And I do take your point that there there are aspects of it that that are legitimate that we can and should talk about. What I would say is once you get to that higher education level, so in other words, you're past high school, now you're talking about college and stuff, at that level, I like the idea of people exploring all sorts of ideas, no matter how extreme, crazy, ridiculous, absurd Mm -hmm. they may be. once you're at that higher education level, it's like, all right, you got the basics down. You went through everything to get to this point. Now let's have some fucking fun. Let's throw our hair down. Let's talk about different... uh, Let's talk about Carl Jung's idea. Let's talk about uh, ideas. Let's talk about existentialism. Let's talk about Sigmund Freud. Hey, Freud thought you wanted to fuck your mother. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, you can make a... You can make a conservative campaign against that. Oh, they're teaching this guy who thinks you want to have sex with your mother. This is deranged. This is demented. This is what kind of stuff is going on over here? This is perversion. This is pedophilia. This is grooming. This is, uh, you know, they could do that, right? But it would be kind of fucking stupid because if you take that and say, this is Freud, no, what about all the other parts of Freud? Mm-hmm. What about the superego and the ego and the id? Do you think there's no validity to that? Like, well, So you have to talk about these ideas yeah. when you're in higher education and talk about it at the level of complexity and abstraction and not like, you, know, you don't just sign on to something. Like, I am a Freudian, you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, well, and what we're seeing now is in the implementation of these like anti-CRT, stop woke and all this stuff efforts, you see the level of extremism, the silliness that they go to. I mean, you always point out like the, person who was banned from reading that, like, it's okay to be a unicorn book or whatever. So like, then once you see it in practice, you're like, oh, that's what you meant? Like, we can't read the unicorn book anymore? What's happening
0: here? This is what conservatives are brilliant at. And this is what DeSantis is the most brilliant at. It's you take something that sounds very reasonable on its face, Mm -hmm. but then your response to it and the the laws you push for and actually get implemented in the case of DeSantis are not the thing that you were pretending to be. Mm -hmm. Like, if you say, oh my God, we got this teacher who's you know talking to fucking five-year-olds and saying sexual shit and talking about whatever. Everybody's going to be like, what the fuck? That's fucking weird. That's crazy. You might want to discipline that teacher. You might want to fire that teacher or whatever. But then, then you pass a bill that doesn't allow a gay married teacher to keep a picture of them and their significant other on their desk in the classroom. Well, no, go fuck yourself. That's totally different. That's night and day. Right. And the broad application of these policies that he's passing are, the, are is that. It's a moral panic around stuff like that. So, but that's what they're good at. They take the fringe edge cases where there's some crazy shit going on and they say, like, this is teachers. And so now we have to crack down on teachers. And here's a a bill that'll chill speech and stifle any sort of discussion in the classroom that I don't like, you know?
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Anyway. It's complicated, but... um I think obviously this battle has been joined by conservatives. They're making a lot of gains in uh, school boards. And so I think it's important to pay attention. And then the broader teacher shortage issue is a massive, massive problem for the entire. Country um, and really is sort of, I think, especially in rural areas and places that don't have the money to compete with the salaries and like, you know, more urban or more wealthy areas. So, a lot to think about there. Um, and uh, it was great to talk to Eric about it all.
0: Yeah, that was very cool. Um, we love you guys. Thanks for listening. As always, you can always support us on Substack. It's $5 a month and it gets you the video of all of the Crystal Kyle and friends and it gets it to you a day early. Everybody else can listen for free on all the various uh, audio platforms. Um, Thank you so much for supporting the show. And again, it's because of them that, you know, we have never had a conversation with an advertiser for this show. And I'm very proud of that. I've been on YouTube for over a decade and never once have I talked to an advertiser. And I may be the only one (laughs) who's, who's in that boat. I have a real like principled, like, I think that's gross. I want to remain, sort of have distance from that stuff, you know? Yeah. And so it's small dollar donors that make it possible, whether it's the Substack people or whether it's uh, people who support Secular Talk on Patreon. So anyway, thanks guys so much. Um, We appreciate you and we'll talk to you soon.